Here you are, Pastor. <clears throat> yeah, um, I forgive you as a country for creating the Nimo bars and then not exporting them because they're just completely amazing. <clears throat> we'll turn back to Ephesians chapter 6 again. We're going to look at that fourth verse. We looked earlier at the two priorities for a child's relationship with their parents. Now we're looking at the two priorities for a, par a parent's relationship with their children. Verse 4 reads this way, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, there, you should have on your handout there a little blue graphic. This is the extent of my graphic arts abilities. But <clears throat> just trying to show you the two priorities graphically, and then we'll look at them more closely. But priority one, don't provoke your children to anger. In the parallel passage in Ephesians 3, uh, the Spirit of God would add through the Apostle, fathers, don't exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. We'll, we'll talk about some of the things that make children angry, and what the, biblical, what the understanding of this biblical term, exasperation. So this is what to be avoided. Don't, here's a negative command. Don't provoke your children. And then priority number two is a positive command. But instead of provocation or exasperation, what should I be doing? To bring them up. <clears throat> and bringing them up is literally a word that means to feed or to nourish as a matter of fact, with your open Bible, look on oh, my Bible, it's just across the page, back to chapter 5, where a husband is, is told there are two ways to love your wife. One, love her like Christ loves his church. The second example is love your wife like you already love yourself. And in, the, in that context, in verse 29, he says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. That word nourished there is exactly the same word that's being used here. Fathers, bring them up. Literally, nourish your children. Uh, rear them tenderly is how John Calvin translated this passage. Uh, the concept is taking something immature and bringing it to maturity. So literally, to feed and metaphorically, well, what's involved in feeding? Maturing, growing, bringing up. And, and so to bring them up is a great translation but I, I just think there's something powerful about seeing the parallel usage in verse 29 of chapter 5. It's interesting, man, because this is normally associated as a feminine trait. Women are to be the nurturers and the nourishers. And, and the answer is not to do this as a woman would do it. But we cannot think to ourselves, you know, I, I'm, I'll, be the, I'll be the heavy and my wife can be the tender. <clears throat> this is a word that has attention to detail and nourishment and, and, and it has some tenderness embedded in it. That's not a call to the feminization of men, it's just a call to be like Christ who nourishes his own people. So the two priorities, don't provoke and bring them up. And then what I'm trying to illustrate in the, the two smaller blocks that go off to both sides are the banner is don't do this, do do this, and then God has given us two tools by which to obey that command. How do I take my children from where they are and bring them to maturity? How do I follow <clears throat> Calvin's advice to rear children with tenderness? How do I literally, spiritually feed and nourish my family? 
And the answer is God's given, embedded in the verse, two ways of doing that. You do that, first of all, in the discipline of the Lord. That, That word discipline doesn't mean in the spanking of the Lord. I would say corporal punishment, the use of the biblical use of the rod is just one of many ways. It's a, it's a repertoire of ways that we train children. This is a call to training them in the Lord. It's a call to discipleship. So train them, discipline, all kinds of different things. It's uh, proactive, it's reactive, it includes rewards, it includes in, in inducements, it includes punishments and consequences. <clears throat> but one of the tools by which we bring these children from where they are to maturity, you do it in the discipline and the training of the Lord. The second tool is you do it in the instruction of the Lord. Uh, again, this is that idea we talked about close to the idea of admonishment. Verbally placing truth into children's minds. If I were going to add one more thing to the graphic, I think what I would add is a timeline going from left to right. <clears throat> I think I'd just put an arrow moving over time. And, I would, and what I would mean by that is in the younger years of a child's life, you're doing more of this training, though you're doing some of this verbal teaching. And, but over time, you're doing less and less of the, 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 the training and more and more of the teaching. Uh, they're not entirely exclusive. It's just that the admixture shifts over time. In the younger years, more training. Uh, children's minds have less ability to grasp doctrine. What you got? It's really just the Nanaimo bar, and I just need to wash it away. I'm sorry. Never eat chocolate just before you speak. I just couldn't say no. And I had this fear that they might be all gone when I'm done. So I sacrificed ministry (laughs) on the altar of my appetite. (laughs) You'll have to consult my nutritionist. I think she would say the half bar I had is sufficient. So over time, this admixture just changes. And it's not that you don't teach, but a young mind can only grasp doctrine at a certain level. And so they can understand, don't push your cup off the high chair, long before they can understand substitutionary atonement. Uh, and, but it's an admixture of both over time. So that's my attempt graphically to say that that's our outline. So let's look together now a little more carefully. <clears throat> Priority number one, avoid sinful provocation and discouragement of your children. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. You can see there I've put in your notes that provoking a good definition is goading goading your children into perpetually resenting you. Now we have to distinguish between unbiblical provocation and how it is a child feels when you say no to them. Because there have been plenty of times my children have been provoked. Uh, a toddler who I won't let stick the bobby pin in the outlet. They feel provoked by me. Am I, am I breaching a biblical command? <clears throat> no, this is a different kind of provocation. I've had teenagers that have said, no, you can't go to this event. They were thoroughly provoked with me. Does that mean I've disobeyed the Bible? No, we can't avoid the provocation that happens because you have behaved righteously. When you're living in wisdom and upholding God's standards and sinners find that provoking, that's understandable because you felt the same way at one point in your life about the law of God. But we're talking about a a provocation that leads to a level of resentment and discouragement 
that has nothing to do with you behaving righteously, <clears throat> but the provocation a child feels because, feels because you're behaving unwisely, unrighteously. So we can keep those two separate in our minds. So this is addressing uh, a father's ability to provoke their children by their sin and in, maybe in particular by their hypocrisy. One of the, the keenest way that a father could, could goad his children into resentment is to hold a standard for their child's life that they're unwilling to live under. And so, uh, or living one way at home, I'm not talking about the normal struggles we discussed in our small group, the reality of, of domestic holiness being the final frontier for sanctification. But I'm talking about rank hypocrisy where sin at home doesn't get addressed. Or, you know, you have a yelling, screaming moment in the car on the way to church. There's, there's tension, or <clears throat> which is not infrequent. That's the reality of life. But for you to plow into church without settling it, without seeking forgiveness, without acknowledging sin, that's the hypocrisy that, that is most provoking, not just for a child, for a spouse as well. But I've, I've taken from Lou Priolo's book called The Heart of Anger, and I've just taken a page out of there and transcribed it for you, on 25 ways to provoke your children to anger. <clears throat> By the way, the parallel passage in Colossians on exasperation is, uh, exasperation is the idea of take, literally taking the wind out of someone's sails. Just discouragement to the point that I, there's no hope. Uh, I'm so exasperated. They, they begin to behave and act like a, a prisoner on death row, right? I've got nothing to lose. I have no hope of change. I have no hope of, <clears throat> of a way out or reform. So don't provoke them to anger and don't exasperate them. Uh, and, and, and here's just some, some things I wouldn't necessarily have thought of as leading to anger in children. Uh, number one on the list, a lack of marital harmony. Well, what is the tension between a husband and wife? There's a party who wants to just divide up your, cubicize your life, you know, section and partition it off. Well, that's the struggle between my, uh, my wife and I. What, what does that have to do with children? Children have a front row seat to all the good and bad of your marriage. And since marriage was designed by God to be a little micro portrait that says, hey, do you want to see a reminder, a, a, a hint, maybe a caricature even, because it's not perfect, but if you want to see a picture of what it looks like for Jesus to love his unlovely people called the church, then just watch how your mom and I treat each other when one of us is not at our best. And who has the front row seat to see that gospel portrait? It's the children. And so a lack of harmony between the two of you, that your kids don't need perfect parents, they just need to see you repent when you've messed up. Well, how often do I need to confess my sin in front of my children? Only as often as you sin in front of them. And so when you mess up, fess up. So sometimes Tandy and I will have what Pastor Jerry in Jupiter calls a tiff, a time of intense fellowship. <laughs> we, will have had, we will have had a tiff, and uh, we might have to go into our bedroom in private and settle it, and, but we'll come out and just say to the kids, hey, uh, I want you to know that mom and I have made things right. I've asked her forgiveness. I've asked the Lord's forgiveness, and I want to acknowledge to you that what you saw, so I've said to the girls, girls, do yourself a favor. Find a better man than your mother did. Look for a better husband. Gentlemen, boys in the house, what daddy just did, that's not how a man treats a wife. That's just a full acknowledgement of that. My kids don't need perfect parents. 
They just need confessional, honest parents who own their sin when it happens. Otherwise, the maddening nature in a child's mind of it. Somebody in the room is crazy when sin gets ignored. And a child reaches a conclusion, either y'all are crazy or I'm crazy. And often the kid will think it's them when sin just gets ignored and swept under the carpet. This is harder for some generations than others, but all of us must over, the Bible must trump cultural norms. And if you come from a cultural background that says, you know, my, my culture doesn't do this, <clears throat> neither did anybody else in the New Testament culture until God said so. So a lack of marital harmony is a huge way to provoke and destabilize a child's life. Number two, I think, is equally counterintuitive. Uh, establish a child-centered home. You'd think the kids would love that. <clears throat> How would that provoke a child? They get, wouldn't that just indulge them and make life wonderful for them? And the, the scripture says no, that a child-centered home is so off of what God wanted. By child-centered, I mean the entire rhythm of life revolves around not those child's needs, that's appropriate, but those child's wants. And, uh, you know, so it's, isn't it interesting that spoiled brats are not happy children? They're not happy, and no one who's within a 50-mile radius of them is happy. And so it, it actually provokes a child when the world revolves around them. Obviously, number three, you model sinful anger. You're going to have you express your anger sinfully. Your children will imitate that. Disciplining in anger, scolding. Number six, this is huge, being inconsistent in discipline. You know, one day they do a behavior and everybody, no, everybody ignores it, but a few days later you just find it more irritating than you can bear. And instead of moving forward in what we just discussed, first time obedience with a normal tone of voice, instead what you have is uh, suddenly the child's like, yesterday that was fine and today I'm in big trouble. Uh, men and uh, women in the workplace, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't you find that maddening if one day the protocol was this? And the next day the protocol was this, and the next day the protocol is just like, just tell me what's going on and, and keep a consistent standard. And so being inconsistent, which I think is probably the greatest failure in discipline. It's, it's more common than anger uh, or impatience in parenting. Consistency is the hardest thing of all. We're tired, uh, we're self-indulgent, we're lazy, uh, we're distracted. Very hard to be consistent. Having double standards, that's the hypocrisy I've already addressed between what you expect of the child and what you demand of you. Uh, being legalistic, and by that I mean the biblical definition of legalism, teaching them that behavior can make them more acceptable to God or unacceptable, pursuing righteousness, uh, a right standing by God, uh, with God by deeds, and not, never admitting when you're wrong, Here's an interesting poll. How many of you would say, my parents never acknowledged sin to me or asked my forgiveness for anything? Any of you? About half of you. The rest of you are blessed. That's, that's, a, that's a wonderful heritage for you to bring into your own parenting. Constantly finding fault, just being overly critical. Reversing the God-given roles as husband and wife. Not listening to a child's opinion or side of the story. Remember we read the proverb that says... Proverbs 18, if you hear only one side of the story and not the other, to you it's folly and shame. You need to be ready to hear both sides of the story. Comparing children to each other, not having time to talk, not praising the child. Uh, Tandy and I have to work hard on being, uh, we're relatively consistent at addressing our children's flaws. 
we're not as good about proactively praising and encouraging our children. Failing to keep promises, particularly amongst fathers, um, we ought to be the one guy in the world whose word can be trusted. doesn't mean that children couldn't understand that plans changed, but to consistently be known as a man who, who offers, creates, you know, vision in the mind of, uh, in the hearts of children, expectation, and then doesn't deliver, and maybe even never even addresses it, that's uh, extremely exasperating for children. Uh, correcting them in front of others. 18 and 19, isn't this interesting? Giving too much freedom makes an angry child, and not giving enough freedom makes an angry child. So nothing complicated about this. Just find that perfect balance, and your kids won't be angry. Okay, that's simple. Making fun of the child, obviously abusing them physically, calling them names, having unrealistic expectations. I'd say attached to that, the danger I've seen of parents living out their unfulfilled dreams through their children. Uh, you could do it in the arts. It's just what's known as a stage mom or a stage dad. Where, so the music and the arts, you can see it in, uh, particularly in dads often in, in a sports area where they'll just be living their, their dreams or, or reliving what they enjoyed or hoping their child will go further than they did. And th there can be noble, wonderful things about that, but, but unrealistic expectations sometimes are coming not really from your desire of what's best for your child, but what might boost your ego or make you look better in the community. I mean, we just drag all this nasty pride even into the parenting process. And sometimes our children are hurt through that. Showing favoritism towards one child. Uh, and number 25, using child training methods that aren't biblical. So that's priority one. And we are to, it's a negative command, avoid sinful provocation, discouragement of children. Uh, if, if this is an area you'd like to read more on, uh, Lou Priolo's book, The Heart of Anger, is a, is a very helpful book. Next page, priority number two, we are called now positively to pursue the tender nurture of your children. Pursue the tender nurture of your children. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I've already addressed how this is, is not a feminine trait, but it's just, it's, it's a call to Christ-likeness, so... Uh, all kinds of training that we have at our hands, proactive training, correct, corrective training, chastisement. So under proactive training, you're just some, in the early years, this is a, these little bullets are just kind of an agenda. What, what should we be aiming at in these early maturing years? Uh, you want to proactively teach things like waiting and self-control. This is important. Uh, eating and manners. Uh, naps and bedtime. I would say as young couples come to us with problems, um, they tend to, they, a lot of them are about sleep, naps, kids getting out of bed. Um, so behaviors associated with bedtime or naps and behaviors associated with the kitchen table. And the reason I think it comes up is, is because in those early years, those are a couple of things that are going to happen every single day. And, and they become great. The first early training grounds is the, the, the behaviors associated with mealtime. That happens three times a day and the behaviors associated with going to bed. And, and so you know, often a couple will be coming. And so sometimes you have really biblical things to say. Sometimes it's just tactical and practical. We'll, we discovered with a couple the other day that, that the, they were having trouble getting uh, a four-year-old approximately into bed at night, just kept getting up with, and of course, a million things. I need a drink, I need to go to the bathroom. 
I have a serious theological issue I need to speak to you about. I mean, all these amazing, profound questions that come up at bedtime that, that never come up at lunchtime. It's so strange. And so helping them through that and, and just talking more and more about what was going on. Tell us about the routine leading up to bedtime. This is what we discovered, that the last thing before bedtime is that daddy wrestled long and hard. And they went straight, so they've already brushed their teeth, they've already put on their pajamas, they've already read their stories, and now we wrestle, highly stimulating, and then, oh, done, bed. And the kid's just like, wired. So tactical advice like that, that's, you know, Tandy sometimes couples will leave and you know, they come to our house or, you know, to talk or whatever, and, and she'll say, should I feel guilty we didn't really even open our Bibles? And I said, they, Sometimes the advice that, that young people need, young couples, is I already know the Bible says make them obey and make them honor, but I've just got this very specific issue, how do we apply that? And one of the dangers you need to walk, those of you older couples who are mentoring younger couples, is that it's natural for them to say, how did you do that? But one of the dangers of my role as a family ministries pastor is I need to tell people, you want to know? We'll tell you how we did it. But I go out of my way to say, this is one of a million ways to apply this principle. The principle is immovable. How you apply it in your family, you have the freedom to do. If I'm going to tell you how we did it, I want to make sure you understand, particularly when I speak authoritatively as a pastor, I'm just telling you this is a way to do it. So uh, older couples... They, you, they need someone to say, how did you do it? Just make sure they understand your way is not the way. Your way is not the principle. Your way is the application of the principle. And that's one of the challenges when couples want to press in. So how did you do family vacation? How did you decide whose house we go to for Christmas? How did you decide who puts bows in the girl's hair and who mows the lawn? How did you decide those things? I'd be happy to tell you as long as you don't take that as authoritative. This is authoritative, the principle, how we apply it. That's the end. But couples need somewhere to go. And often it isn't their own biological parents. It's going to be spiritual parents like you in the church. So feel free to share the practical ways you applied the biblical principle. But be careful to distinguish in their mind between the two. Otherwise, their admiration for you will make them template and do exactly what you did. And sometimes that might be fine, and in other times that may not work well for their family at all. So there's some nuances you need to navigate. So bring them up by proactive training, manners, bedtime, uh, communication, teaching children, speaking versus screaming, uh, what polite words look like. These are all things I, I know many of you know, but when I'm teaching young couples, they, they, they kind of need, what, what, are, what should we be looking for? Uh, training them as young as they are to help with chores. One of our youngest grandchildren loves to sort the silverware for his mommy when it comes out of the dishwasher. And all the forks go here and the spoons go. There's tactile motor skills being learned. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff going on. But mostly his heart is learning to be a contributor uh, because one of the things you're fighting against in a family is helping them define interdependency. We need each other. We're together. We're not seven autonomous people living in one house. Uh, what makes us a family is not our zip code. It's our interdependency on one another, and that's an early way to train it. Inside versus outside behaviors, uh, running versus walking. We worked with a couple a couple of years ago who we, we spent a weekend with them and just uh, doing ministry and just noticed that their kids behaved exactly the same in the church lobby as they did in the park earlier in the afternoon. And it's just like, so we just have to sit down and say, you, you got to teach them this, this is house behavior. 
This is yard behavior. This is park behavior. This is church behavior. This is restaurant behavior. Your kids are just kind of the same everywhere we go. And uh, someone, some older person in your church is going to get run over by your child. And uh, that's, that's unnecessary. Caring for personal property, you know, implied in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, means that I have a right to own something that you don't take. And uh, this, teaching them care for people's property. We try to train our kids to, for instance, to care more for other people's property than even our own. If daddy borrows a tool or a car, I want to return that thing better than the shape I got it in, not, not worse. And, you know, so as you understand your values and you want to teach generosity and care of others, Sharing, self-control, preferring other people. You know, one of the ways to, to do that is, is teaching them to pray for others' needs. We've tended to pray as a family largely for our own needs. And uh, as we expand that to include others that we care about in ministry and whether our church or beyond, that's one of the ways you're just implicitly teaching them. We, we care about others. We even prefer others over ourselves. Another wonderful proactive teaching tool is, is repeating an event following the use of the, the biblical use of the rod. So a child has experienced the chastisement, that's reactive training. But proactive training is taking that child back to the same spot, let's try it again. So I'm gonna go over here, you were here when you disobeyed and I'm gonna squat down and say, come to mommy and let's try it again. And hopefully the child comes running into your arms. Sometimes we're afraid of repeating the event and the good reinforcement that would come from that for fear that they're going to do exactly the same sinful thing again. And uh, sometimes that's a legitimate fear. I'll just leave it at that. So bring them up by training. That's proactive training. What about correction and chastisement? Just a couple of principles, and then we'll look at this more carefully in a moment. Correction and chastisement is reserved for disobedience, for defiance, and for dishonoring behaviors. When we're talking about chastisement and the biblical use of the rod, we're talking about something that is not, you don't train an immature child with spankings. That's reserved for defiant behavior. So you've got to figure out, is what just happened immaturity that needs to be trained and grown? Or was it defiance of a known command either from scripture or what we would call house rules? Uh, there are house rules that are not in God's word. Let me give you an example. The child runs through the living room, trips, falls, hits an end table, and breaks an antique lamp. Does that child deserve the rod? I don't know yet. You haven't given me enough information. I haven't given you enough information. If that child is just learning to walk, <clears throat> well, our youngest grandchild has just started walking. <laughs> He's such a slight little fellow. He's uh, how many months? Four. 14, 15 months old, but he's about the size of a six to eight month old. So seeing him walk is hilarious because he just looks too tiny. What are you doing? If he runs through the living room, trips and falls and breaks the lamp, that's not defiance. That's immaturity. It's not even foolishness. It's just clumsiness. I don't expect him to have the motor skills to, but if his older brother who's been told, uh, they call us Papa and Marmy, Marmy from Little Women. Uh, Papa at Marmy's house, and if you run through the living room when you broke the lamp, then that would be defiance if that had been a rule that had been established. They can run in our house, but, but that would be an example. So did the child <clears throat> willingly defy a known command that you've been working on? In other words, did they sin with knowledge, or did they, or did they just 
was he just clumsy through immaturity? The rod is reserved for defiance, disobedience, dishonoring behavior. You don't use it to train a child in every area where they're immature. You use it, and it's really, it's, it's, it's an artificial, sudden burst of consequence meant to teach one primary lesson, and that is sin always leads to suffering. And so it's an artificial consequence. What do I mean by artificial? They didn't break the lamp with their bottom, but their bottom will receive the, the controlled, loving burst of pain that will send a signal even to a young mind Sin leads to suffering. Disobedience doesn't lead to pleasure, it leads to misery. And this is an important spiritual principle and the sooner, as soon as they're able to grasp that, and so it doesn't, I mean, typically doesn't start with uh, a spanking on the bottom. For instance, in the gravity game in the high chair, typically that would have begun on the hand. I want them to understand this was the sinning member. And, and so it might start there when children are screaming and we're trying, I remember Tandy trying to teach our kids an inside voice versus outside voice. Um, she would, I remember when they were little, if they started, they found their voice and they don't know what to do with it. La, 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 la. They're just like, what are you? And so she would just look at them and go, la, 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 la. And, and they would look at her and they'd just stop doing it. Or, or she'd just tap their lips and go use quieter voice. It's amazing how long before language is developed. They could get these concepts. And again, is that the only way to train that? No. But have you ever been with a family who's decided not to train their child to control their voice? It's not a lot of fun. It's unpleasant for everyone. And the older your hearing gets, the more brutal it is. And so it's reserved for disobedience and defiance. That second bullet under point number two, correction and chastisement. It's not for immaturity. It's not for confusion. It's not to be given at times when the child has just become irrational. When do you begin? As soon as they're old enough to disobey. Now, disobedience is not immaturity. Disobedience is willful. You've got knowledge. I'm supposed to do A. I'm going to do Z. I'm not supposed to do A. Then I'm going to do Z. Or I should be doing A. Mm, I'm not going to do A. So that's just keep that in mind. Um, we'll, we'll go on. I have several pages of just opening up number two, but let's go ahead and look at, at this second area before we do that. So you bring them up by training. You also then bring them up by instruction. That word for instruction is that word we've seen several times this weekend, the word uh, ad, admonishment. Nutheteo is the verb, it, and that's that word that means take truth, place it into the mind telling people what they've forgotten or what they need to know, what they've either never heard or need to hear for the hundredth time. This is something we do to each other in the body of Christ, but uniquely in parenting. Under this banner of tenderly bringing them to maturity, we do this both through training, but also through this kind of instruction. You're probably aware the Bible gives some tragic examples of failure to train children. Uh, Eli in 1 Samuel 3 had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and you may recall while carrying out priestly duties uh, in, the, in, the, in the place of worship, they, they committed gross sins, and Eli turned a blind eye to all of it, had knowledge of it, and didn't correct his children. These were adult children, and they needed truth placed into their mind. Sadly, as much as we should and do admire King David, 
in 1 Kings chapter 1, uh, a similar epitaph. It just says of him, he, he, had, he had children and he didn't cross them. He just never really instructed them. So we have tragic examples. We also have really encouraging examples of parents who engaged in this in uh, training and instruction. If there are any single moms here or single moms who might listen to this recording, I often point single mothers to the encouragement of Timothy, uh, an amazing and godly young man who had a Christian mother and a Christian grandmother and, an, and a pagan dad. And sometimes mothers are worried, will I... You know, will my child look at Christianity as feminine because the only example he has of, of Christianity is, is, is me as mom at home. But, but Timothy's just a great example of how God used Lois and Eunice and God knew how to bring Paul into Timothy's life. Um, I would stand before you as another example. My mom's teaching me scripture every day before I get on the bus. My dad never speaks to me of the things of the Lord. Uh, and God brought uh, men in the church pastors in the church, uh, the, music, the music guy that Tandy and I met and grew up under in high school, he went to Moody. That's why I went to Moody. He cast a long shadow over my life. I wanted to be like him. There's only one problem. He was a six foot, five and a half barrel-chested baritone, and I'm a puny four foot something, 100 pounds wet tenor. Uh, so there were some ways I was not going to be like George Palachek. But uh, there were many ways. He went to Moody. I want to go to Moody. I want to be like him. God brought heroes into my life. And God knows how to do that for any, any, if you feel like you're the primary spiritual influence as a woman and that bothers you, just take courage. Pray for God to bring men in this church. If they're not doing it naturally, just tap somebody on the shoulder and say, my son likes you. He admires you. Could you reach out to my son? And, and men look around for for. For boys like that who you know could be at risk. And so fortunately, about the time I literally, I do remember wondering. I wonder if Christianity is girlish. Because I had an older, an admirable older sister. So moms, take courage. I, I remember the time when I actually thought, is Christianity a woman's religion? And it was about that time that six foot six George Palachek was brought into my life. So... He was, uh, he was about as masculine as they get. He was a former center for the University of Chicago and uh, blew out his knee in an all-star game on live television and uh, was not a believer then and, <clears throat> and then began uh, singing uh, for the Chicago Lyric Opera Chorus because he'd been raised in the Russian Orthodox Church but there's a very strong tradition of male singing. And uh, so here's this Renaissance guy, part athlete, part musician. Uh, then he gets saved and off he goes to Moody and then... Uh, the Lord used him in my life. So in many ways, you're, ex you're, in, you're experiencing a second generation of ministry from me through a man who's now with the Lord that you never met. So God knows how to bring men into boys' lives at just the right time. There are probably many men in this room who'd say, the Lord did that for me too. But even if you have a great dad, God's plan still is for the body of Christ to fill out your father's deficits. And you know, the dad's not the be-all and end-all of all discipleship in a man's life. Nor is the mom to be all and end all of that. That's the purpose of the church. So you have that wonderful opportunity to be an incubator to grow young men into godly men. So, so uh, Timothy's a great example. Uh, Israel themselves called in Deuteronomy 6. That, you may recall that beautiful passage where, where fathers are told, do, there's two kinds of teaching you want to bring into your kids' lives. The intentional kind where you sit down and you would open the word. You were called to teach your children 
And then you're also called to talk to your children when you go by the way, when you come in, when you go out. So there's this idea of training in the milieu of life uh, where, you know, the, the tire blows out, the, the bill shows up, and, and, and we need to pray about this together, and uh, mommy gets sick, whatever it may be. Um, so teaching in the milieu of life, and then also times where you open the word and you do intentional instruction. So you get this, this idea of just a pervasive kind of instruction. Some of the most powerful mentors in my life have been men who influenced me just accidentally. They weren't trying to disciple me. There was no formal scheduled meetings. They just influenced me by being themselves, which I think is the most terrifying thing about parenting. I'm not just teaching my kids when I say, hey, let's gather, open the word of God, let me teach you and let's pray. I'm teaching them all the time just by being me. Oh dear. Right? That accidental mentoring that goes on. So that's what we're called to do. And, 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 and that passage in Deuteronomy 6 does a beautiful job depicting that. Uh, in Psalm 78, Asaph, you've got to look at this passage later. The, later, the opening of Psalm 78, he really gives a curriculum outline. What is it that we're to teach our children? He, he gives this beautiful multi-generational picture. Teach them the dangers of not walking with God and teach them the blessings of walking with God. And then the rest of Psalm 78 is one of those long narrative psalms where he basically tells the whole history of Israel in one song. But uh, I just love that where he talks about multiple generational training. Uh, you, you should look at Psalm 78 later. And then obviously God's plan is that godly elders in the church would also be examples of what it looks like to, to do uh, spiritual training. So we're to, the banner over all of it is don't exasperate. Instead, with tenderness, uh, nurture your children into maturity. The two ways we do that is by training and instruction. Now what I've done next is just because inevitably the, the moment you bring up the use of chastisement, the use of the rod, there's all kinds of questions. So this next page I just put together for you all of the Proverbs on the, on the use of the rod and I put them in categories as I looked at them. Uh, and so you'll see underlined in there the three major categories. Number one, the rod is necessary because of a child's sinful nature. Number two, the rod is necessary because of parents' sinful reluctance. And number three, the rod is necessary because of the consequences of either using or not using the rod. So back up to the top. Proverbs 10, 13. The rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. Your child was born with a lack of spiritual insight and understanding, and part of their, their coming out of that ignorance is through the use of the rod. Again, that artificial sudden burst of consequence, sin leads to suffering. I say artificial because it doesn't exactly, the crime and uh, they, they aren't exactly tied together. But I remember when we first, our first child was born, an older father said to me, he was a physician, and he said, though it can't be found on any anatomy and physiology chart, I'm just telling you, Todd, there is a nerve between the rear end and the heart. And, uh, and nobody can find it, but I'm telling you, it's there. And I, and I knew what he meant. And so uh, Proverbs 14 says, in the mouth of fools is a rod for his back. Foolishness is what gets addressed in part by the rod. Psalm 22, foolishness again is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Not going to remove foolishness in the sense that it somehow removes sin from his heart. 
But the kind of immature foolishness that unchecked would be a disaster, he says, the rod can remove even in a lost child's heart, even before the Lord saves someone and gives them a new heart, there is a kind of foolishness that gets driven out of the life of a child who is lovingly, not abused, but disciplined in a biblical way. Proverbs 26, the whip is for the horse, a bridle is for the donkey. These are training tools for animals. And he says when it comes to children, the rod is again for the back of fools. So the number one, you can put these together, the rod is necessary, why? Because of the foolishness that's bound up, the sinfulness in the heart of a child. And God says this is, this is one of the ways we address that. Secondly, the rod is necessary because of a parent's sinful reluctance. It isn't just sin in the child that makes the rod necessary, but because of our own reluctance, our tendency to use unbiblical techniques and to avoid some of the things that God says. So in, in chapter 13, the scripture says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. God knew that there would be this reluctance in us. For some, it would just be the, the thought of inflicting pain. This was always hard for Tandy. Tandy really had to, in dependent faith on the word of God, engage. She would have naturally, as a mom, preferred not to spank the kids. And I had to help her make sure that it was you know, appropriate. And her reluctance made her... Sometimes it, it, it didn't hurt bad enough to feel like a consequence. So your children are very foolish, and I'd be home, and I tended when I was home, even if they sinned against their mother, to take that discipline. She's got plenty of hours of doing that every day when I'm gone, and so if I was home, generally I administered the rod. But uh, one time, uh, they had sassed off to their mother, and I was taking them to the, to the laundry room, which is usually where we went, and, <clears throat> and to administer the rod, and they're crying on the way, saying, no, no, let mommy spank me, let mommy spank me. I said, why? And they said, because I sinned against her. I said, oh, yeah, you did, I'll spank you. Why else do you not want mommy? Well, mommy doesn't hurt. I said, okay, well, even if that's true, if you were smart, you wouldn't say that. <laughs> so, so I said, well, let's have mommy come in with us, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help mommy learn to, to make it hurt. And so I discovered that Tandy was spanking with her wrist. I said, baby, you got to get some arm in there. And, and, uh, and so just, there is this sinful, I mean, you're blessed if you're reluctant. If you look forward to spanking your children, you're, you're, on, you're in unbiblical ground already. So there should be, you know, within that indulgent, loving part of you that wants to just go, ah, I know God says to do this, so I'll do this. So if you withhold the rod, the scripture says, you don't train your children in all ways, including corporal punishment and this chastisement. It says, you, don't, you can't really say you love your child. You're really loving yourself. You're protecting yourself from that discomfort. Further, Solomon writes in Proverbs 23, Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. He may give you an Academy Award-winning performance in death and dying, but biblically administered discipline, the child will not die. Instead, you're not, you're not causing death, you're bringing life. Strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from the grave, from Sheol. And so these are, these are pretty non-negotiable, not hard to understand. We need some help sometimes implementing them, but these are pretty clear. 
I can think of a couple of times where I was administering the rod to my kids where interesting things came up. One is I found myself quoting verse uh, chapter 13, 24 frequently, son or daughter, if I don't do what God asks me to do, then I want you to know I would be disobeying God. And I'm obeying God, and he says, this is one of the ways I show love to you. And uh, what did you do wrong? You know, I, uh, I disobeyed. And uh, what does God say? He says that, that you know, you should, you should spank me. I said, so does daddy look angry to you? No, I'm not angry. I'm not doing this because I'm angry. I'm doing this because if I don't, I'll be disobeying God. And God tells me, and I believe him, that this will help you. I understand. And so I said this to them many times. So one of the first times my, my oldest son was old enough to, to go to a park with my dad alone, they went off with a balsam air, wood you know, airplane. And uh, they went off, had a good time. It was a park within walking distance of our home, and they walked back home. And, and so, so they come back in. My son runs up, says, how was the time? It was fun. He ran upstairs, and my dad's not looking so happy. I said, what's going on? And he said, uh, why did you tell my grandson that I hated you when you were growing up? And I was like, I don't remember saying that. I said, what, what's the context, Dad? He said, well, he said you, that I hated you growing up because the Bible says um, that if you love your son, you would spank them. And my daddy says that you never gave him any spankings when he was growing up, so he's connecting all the dots. Therefore, the Bible says you hated my daddy. How come? I was just like, so be careful how well you train your children and make them back to bite you. So I'm saying, well, Dad, this was the passage. This was, I, I, it's not quite what it appeared to be. And maybe my other favorite moment, same tender-hearted little boy. One time he said, I was telling him again, uh, you know, I have to do this because this is what the Lord says. I'm not angry. I take no pleasure in this. And, and um, you know, this is, this is going to help you. And, and so... Um, he says, how come you don't get spankings? And I said, well, I actually do get spankings. God spanks me on my heart. When I sin, I'm, I'm spanked. He says, oh, you mean like that burning feeling you get in your tummy when you tell a lie? I said, exactly. So I thought, oh, good, he'll understand. I'm ready to do that. He says, well, wait a minute. I know that feeling. How come, how come I get a spanking on my bottom and my heart and you only get a spanking on your heart. <laughs> like, that's just how it works. No, nobody wants to spank this bottom. And you know, it's just like, I, it, when you grow up, you won't, you'll only get spankings on your heart too. He says, I, I want to be a daddy. I said, yeah, <laughs> try it sometime. <laughs> so you, you do need to, uh, so this instruction isn't just for me. I communicated these to my children. You're going to want to communicate. Make the purpose clear. Our culture wants to call this abuse. This is not abuse. Is it possible to abuse your children? Absolutely. Is it, is it sinful to spank your children in anger? Absolutely. There have been times, I remember one time, I was, I was upset, and I sent a child to the laundry room, and I went in there, and I just realized I'm, I'm still too upset. So I said, sweetie, just wait here. Daddy's going to go get his heart right, and Daddy's going to come back. I'm too angry right now to spank you in a biblical way. And so I went off, got calmed down, and forgot about it. <laughs> And like 40 minutes later, she comes out. She says, did you forget about me? So tempted to lie. <laughs> well, what was my option? Yeah, it takes your dad 40 minutes to get his heart calmed. <laughs> I said, honey, I did forget about you. She said, I thought so. So can that be my spanking? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> we still have to go back. But sometimes it will require just to step away, get your heart right, 
you, you, you want to make sure your child knows you're in control. And the, otherwise, all, the only lesson they learn is if you push dad or mom hard enough, this is what happens. And that's not what you're trying to communicate. If you rebel against God and disobey me and the Lord, then this is the consequence. Your sin will lead to suffering. <clears throat> Lastly, the rod is necessary because of the consequences of its use or disuse. Chapter 19, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Have you not met this child in Walmart? The one that's bringing great shame to their mother? Sure you have. And before you have kids, you look at those kids and you say, my child will never do that. And, uh, and then the Lord humbles you with children, so... Finally, chapter 29, correct your son and he will give you comfort. And he will also be a delight to your soul. Now remember, these are, these are proverbs, principles, intended wise generalities. This, this doesn't mean that every child who is disciplined will always, for every chapter of their life, bring delight to their parents. But in general, these are proverbs. They're different from promises. So I wanted to point those things out to you. I've listed them below that common problems with the use of the rod. Uh, when parents have come to me, I, I'm trying to do what the Bible says. It doesn't seem to be working. Um, and, and these are, as I've listened over the years, even analyzing our own failures as parents and successes and obediences, uh, here, here's just some common problems. Number one, I would say, is waiting too late for discipline. You've already fallen into the repeating yourself multiple times. And and perhaps uh, you repeated yourself and finally got the child to comply and 15 minutes later they do the same thing again and you give another verbal reproof. And what's happened is the child's gotten more brazened in their disobedience and you're getting more and more irritated and more and more angry. You don't, in the moment where you go to give the rod, you are there as representing God. God's unbending law that makes a child realize at some point, I can't be good. I'm not good. And even when I appear to be good on the outside, I'm learning, I'm not good on the inside. Sometimes the only reason I obey is because I want that lollipop or that ice cream cone or that, that reward or the smile of approval. I'm not good in my heart. And so that, that's what you're trying to, re go represent God in that moment. And if you've waited too long, you're not gonna represent God. All your child's gonna learn, again, you push dad or mom far enough and hard enough, this is what will happen. So they'll just learn irritability and anger, and that's not the lesson God intends. Don't wait too late. Sometimes that's the problem. Across on the next column, parental anger related to the first one or a lack of love. Um, after you've administered the rod, there should be, there should be hugs, kisses, prayers, and assurance. Uh, when the rod is, is, is given and... In a, implemented in a biblical manner, children's hearts are soft, and it's interesting. They want to draw close to you. Uh, no child will draw close to an abuser. You abuse your kids with anger, they're not going to hug you when it's done. They're going to resent you, but I've just seen it five kids times, how many times? Hundreds of times. Just a, a tenderness. It, it, it strengthened our relationship. Their conscience is, they're not necessarily forgiven, but their conscience is purged. Uh, they have suffered the consequence. They've acknowledged that sin to you, and it, 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 it strengthens the relationship. It doesn't tear at it. The next two, too much force or not enough force. 
uh, I mentioned to you, when Tandy didn't make it hurt bad enough, then they didn't really learn the lesson of sin leads to suffering. It was more like sin leads to a mild inconvenience. <clears throat> and so we're not looking for abuse. We're not looking for... And people want to say, how hard? I would just say the minimum amount of force that it takes to get the job done. What's the job? A penitent child. A child who is, even if it's not for the most profound spiritual sense, but a penitent child in this sense, they are sorry they committed that sin. They are, they are feeling the weight of the suffering and they're putting together this led to that and that's not good. That's where we're starting. That's the earliest impression of their God-given conscience that you have the opportunity to influence. Too much force, of course, frightens a child. Too much force could physically harm a child. So sometimes you just find out it's, it's kind of one or the other, not enough force or too much force. It took me a while to discover it, but with our youngest child, I discovered that half the force of any of her siblings could accomplish exactly the same penitence. So the minimum, and so when I was just applying kind of what I was routinely used to, I've never bruised the children, I've never left marks on the children, but that's the, the, the level of intensity I was accustomed to giving. She would start crying on the way to the laundry room and screaming, no, don't hurt me. I'm thinking, this doesn't sound good to the neighbors, honey. <laughs> you, know, you cannot scream like that. People will misunderstand. You need to be quiet. Is daddy angry? Look at my face. No. I said, you're just afraid. So I just realized I needed to de-intensify. This is a tender heart. And it only took about half as much force for her to be deeply sorrowful about her sin. So too much force is harmful. Not enough force doesn't work. It's a common problem. Inconsistency. One day the standard is here. And if you do that once, you get the rod. Another day you can do it 10 times and nothing happens. That, that's, that's ineffective and, and, and not helpful. So if you say it's not working, well, you're not consistently applying it. You're just creating confusion. Uh, failing to include instruction as part of the process. Uh, I, would, I would say along with that, failing to, uh, well, right underneath that, I said no confession or acknowledgement of sin. In this process, why are we here? Why, what, what did you do? I mean, getting them to frame up and articulate, I clonked my brother in the head with a Tonka truck. Okay? Uh, I disobeyed the running rule in the house. So getting them to own and articulate wouldn't, wouldn't you be a better confessional Christian in your own prayer life, less blame shifting if you had been taught from as early as you can, own your sin, name your sin, articulate your sin. So failing to give some instruction, some biblical loving, even if it's just this dangerous verse, the Bible says I would hate you if I didn't do this, that I would be contributing to your spiritual demise. Even if they turn around and use that against you with their grandfather, it, it gives some biblical instruction. Uh, wait for them to give a confession. Um, related to that over on the left, a child's fear. You know, I just had to say to this child, don't, you don't need to be afraid of daddy. Daddy, this is going to hurt, but daddy's not going to harm you. And, um, you know, opportunities to share the gospel are, are wonderful in these settings. But some of the books I've read were really great gospel opportunities talking about sin and righteousness in Christ. But sometimes, I'll just, it's several paragraphs, sometimes it's just swift, quick justice. We're getting out the door. There's not time for a full gospel presentation spanking. This is just a quick spanking and then get your shoes and get in the car. We're already late. But when you have opportunity for the more leisurely version 
by all means, take advantage of that instructional evangelistic opportunity. Uh, another common problem is when the rod is used for release of parental frustration rather than loving correction. Failure to representing God as, and his authority. God is offended. We're not in here because you, you have, your sin was offensive to me, but that is the least of your worries. Your sin was offensive to your creator who says, don't clonk your brother on the head with a Tonka truck. And so, so giving that, representing God and his offense in the process. And then finally, sh failing to show affection or to reconcile with your child afterwards. That, you know, one thing, we, we would always pray. I, I asked every child every time, do you want to pray? I would never say you must pray. Do you want to pray? It's funny, some of my kids wanted to pray every time. And they would say to God, they would confess their sin to God just the way they had to me. Oh, God, please forgive me for disobeying Daddy or disobeying Mommy. Um, and then others of the kids just wanted nothing to do with praying. It had more to do with shyness and temperament. It didn't, I saw no correlation years later between spiritual openness and that moment. And so you, you don't force it, you just, so there were a couple times when I would say, not trying to persuade them, but sweetie, you seem to feel very easy talking to Daddy about it. Just tell God the same thing you just, tell God the same thing you just told Daddy. You don't want to do that? Mm -mm. Okay, well then let me pray for you. A couple of times I had them ask me, will you ask God's forgiveness for me? I said, I can't, I can't do that for you. I said, I, I can pray to God uh, about strengthening you and helping you learn to obey, and, uh, but I, I can't. Uh, you could ask God to forgive mm, I don't want to do that. Okay, you lost little shriveled up sinner you. <laughs> So, so again, some of it just was temperament and shame over the sin still. And, and it is funny. It, it's harder to admit to God than it would be even to mom and dad. So, so uh, affection, praying at, at the end. and uh, What I've given you next came out of curriculum. I had permission to use it. Um, this comes from an excellent parenting curriculum called Parenting for Life from Grace Community Church in California. This is from John MacArthur's ministry. This is one of the few resources from... MacArthur's ministry that isn't published. This is just an in-house, but it's still the best parenting curriculum I know. If you want this, you either get it online from Grace Community or they just mail you hard copies. Um, it's, it, if you, um, it's not bound. If you, even if you order the hard copy, it just comes three-hole punched and you have to pop it in a notebook. And despite its unglamorous appearance, I'll just stand by again and say, the best parenting curriculum I know. Uh, Pastor Jerry, who I work with, uh, Pastor Lance, my former colleague, oh, um, Carrie Hardy in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, they all had a hand in writing it, and it's just, just terrific stuff. This is one of the appendices from that book, and it's uh, excellent suggestions for use of the rod, and I wanted to include that as a resource for you. Then on the final page, I've just listed some recommended resources on parenting for you. Uh, the Parenting for Life, the 12-week uh, class. Um, there's an old note about when it was offered back in 16. This is something we, we teach perpetually at Grace Emanuel uh, about at least every 18 months. Sometimes in a home Bible study, sometimes in a Sunday school class, sometimes on a Wednesday night. Um, and so we're just keeping this before our people all the time. Some who need it for the first time, others who just need a refresher and a reminder. Shepherding a Child's Heart, I would say, is probably the best book on parenting young children that I've read. This idea of going after not behavioral modification, but the heart. 
is what this book is all about. And it's really more about shepherding a parent's heart than it is a child's heart, that's for sure. The Faithful Parent by Stuart Scott and Martha Peace. This is part of a trilogy of books, The Excellent Wife by Martha Peace, The Exemplary Husband by Stuart Scott, and then together they wrote this book, uh, The Faithful Parent. Martha Peace is a retired nurse, and what I like about Faithful Parent is uh, in each chapter, the book is written chronologically um, through a child's life, and she does bring nursing perspective, just developmental things, what you should be looking for and expecting, really helpful for first-time parents, even bringing in a little bit of uh, her, her nursing art and science into the book. Withhold Not Correction by Bruce Ray. Bruce is a, a re recently retired pastor from the northwest part of the U.S. This book has been in print for about 40 years. Uh, Christian books don't usually have long print runs, so... This has been seen as a helpful book. The, oh, I, I just have to give one. I've met Bruce. He's a jolly, uh, lovely man. I really, really liked him. Uh, the book is heavy and uh, sober, and I, expected a, I did not expect a jolly man behind the book, and I found him to be much more winsome than I expected. Um, it's, it's not overly sober. It's as sober as the scripture is. There's only one thing in the book as my disclaimer, and that is that he, he does not demand but purports the value sometimes of spanking children into their teen years. And that's just something that's, that makes no sense to me. The, uh, a child who's entered puberty and has become a young adult, uh, the nature of that kind of discipline, I just think we have a lot better tools in our hand than that. Uh, so other than, and that's, that's not a major emphasis of the book by any means, I just wouldn't want you to pick it up and think, Pastor Todd didn't mention this at all. So with that one disclaimer, uh, I like the book. If you were only gonna read one chapter, Read the chapter on representing God in the moment of giving the rod. It is, he, see, he, he calls your heart to see this as an act of submissive worship and just kind of puts a different taste in your mouth about what this thing is all about. Uh, I've never read anything else quite like that. So I, I commend that book to you. Disciplines of a Godly Family by Kent and Barbara Hughes. I asked Kent and Barbara to come to Grace Emanuel several years ago and uh, to teach through this book, this, uh, we loved this book as a family, but this is, not, this, is n this is not even like this workshop. This is not opening up the scriptures and explaining words and their implications. This is literally like having a cup of coffee with them, asking them what young couples now ask us. Okay, I know what the Bible says. How did y'all do it? What did you do on family vacations? What were your Christmas traditions? And the book is just delightful and rich and... Uh, and they're again not purporting themselves as this is the only way you asked. This is how we did it. Kent is the retired emeritus uh, pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, and just a, a statesman. And just I just love him. And his book early in my ministry called Liberating the Church from the Success Syndrome uh, prevented me from, uh, it was an important book in my formative years, just exposed the sinful nature of selfish ambition in ministry and kind of inoculated me, made me unsusceptible to a lot of the current diseases that have infected evangelicalism. This is an early word. He was, he was prophetic. And I just love that book and, and love this man. And so let me tell you how practical this book is. It has recipes in it. You want to know? Here's our favorite thing. It has a list of books that they enjoyed reading out loud as children. It's just gold. It's not like any other book. So you got a young couple that wants instruction biblically. This is not that book. But if you want to give them one of those and this beside it, they'll, they'll love it. So a list of movies their family enjoyed. It's just really fun. There's not another book exactly like it anywhere. So Disciplines of a Godly Family 
Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, beautiful uh, scriptural exposition by Bishop J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool in the 1800s. Ryle is one of my favorite authors, hands down about anything. <clears throat> and so his duties of parents is very, very good. Another book from the 1800s, now in print from Shepherd Press by Gardner Spring called Hints for Parents. It's a little teeny hardback book. It's a very, it would make a really nice baby shower gift. Um, an affordable, because we, we tend to find good affordable gifts and then order 20 of them. And now we've got a stockpile going. <laughs> Problem is now all the brides in your church are all going to get, the young moms will all get, oh, 14, 14 copies of Hints for Parents. <laughs> but I'll toss that out too as a, as a, as a good idea.